Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... This is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tip and no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. <laughs> Hello and welcome again to Democracy Sausage. I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute. We've observed many times on this program that trust in public institutions, in governments and police and hospitals and so forth, even perhaps the notion of expertise, has risen during the pandemic. Of course, it was coming off a pretty low base, especially in terms of confidence in our political representatives and the diligence with which they apportion the vast revenues they're entrusted to spend. In truth, public confidence spiked most notably through the first year of the pandemic and has probably waned since, really, thanks in large measure to failures in quarantine and the lethargic approach to vaccine procurement in 2020, for which we're all still paying. Yet if we think back to the start of 2020, the story that dominated in Canberra between the black summer bushfires and the coronavirus was sports rorts. And there's been worse since in the form of a bizarre car parks fund for Liberal electorates that had no objective criteria at all. Now, as we limp towards the end of 2021, there's a live debate about a national integrity body, a live debate again, that is, often called a federal ICAC, that is simultaneously being propelled and retarded by the resignation of New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. While Berejiklian chose to resign, even though she claims to have acted with integrity at all times, Scott Morrison argues that her unfair political demise proves that the New South Wales ICAC is something of a loose cannon, that it's prejudicial and that it's perhaps beyond reason. Many say the New South Wales case highlights the need for such a body nationally. Those opposed use the same circumstances to argue that the ICAC shows us what not to do. This is among a few issues I'd like to get to this week with our guests. Yifui is an Associate Professor and Deputy Director of the Australian Centre for Justice Innovation at Monash University. She's a 2021-22 Fulbright Scholar and her research centres on strengthening political institutions and enhancing executive accountability. 
She's published widely on integrity systems, grant rules, and the role of ministerial advisors, and much more. It's a pleasure to be here today. Oh, it's very good to have you there, Yifui. And David Crow is Chief Political Correspondent at the City Morning Herald and the Age. He's also President of the Federal Parliamentary Press Gallery, and he's a member of the National Press Club Board, on which I also serve. Welcome to you both. Great to be here, and thank you. Fantastic to be here. Now, David, just before we get into some of the details, I just wanted to, uh, in terms of the federal integrity body, I just wanted to invite you to comment on that sort of somewhat perverse reading of the Berejiklian matter by some federal coalition MPs, the influential ones indeed. Because in a sense, you know, we might think that it strengthens the case for uh, a, a federal ICAC. You know, that's always the, you know, the, the response that you would imagine that every time we see uh, potential questions of uh, integrity, uh, behaviour and so forth uncovered in political life, that that strengthens the case for a similar body at the federal level and, you know, really highlights the absence of one. But in, in a sense, it seems like the circumstances of Berejiklian's case have made a similar kind of body at the federal level, at least one with any, anything like the same sorts of powers, less likely, not more. I think that's right. I think that it is less likely under this government. It all depends on the next election, of course, where we could see this come up as an election issue. It might not be a dominant election issue, but it will be there, I think. I was talking to a Liberal MP the other day who was dismayed by um, the treatment of Berejiklian in, in the New South Wales ICAC. For instance, the playing of a secret recording with the New South Wales Premier talking to her then lover in an open hearing. And to this Liberal, who's not a New South Wales Liberal, somebody who's not aligned with, uh, in the same party as Berejiklian, but not part of her New South Wales faction or power base, didn't like the idea of that kind of material being played in an open hearing when there's no, um, well, in fact, I don't think, Berejiklian was the subject of that investigation. The investigation was into her boyfriend, Daryl Maguire. So for a lot of Liberals, that's a bridge too far and that's why they're adamant that a Federal Integrity Commission would not be holding public hearings in the same way. They don't like that, that aspect of the New South Wales model. They prefer actually the Victorian model, which can hold public hearings but uh, does not have the full scope of the New South Wales ICAC. And so they've, they've really drawn a line on that. And that's why I think when it comes to a vote in uh, Parliament, there are some things that Scott Morrison doesn't have feel impelled to negotiate on in the Senate and there's no pressure in his own party room for him to go any further than the relatively tepid model that he's put forward already. Yeah, I suppose that's a function of ICAC being involved in the demise of, of three New South Wales premiers. You know, there's some bitterness about that, particularly in the case of uh, Barry O'Farrell and uh, the bottle of wine, the bottle of Grange, uh, for example, that was at the centre of, of that matter. And the somewhat technical nature, it seems, really in the case of Berejiklian. I mean, Berejiklian, as I said in the introduction, hasn't been found guilty of anything or even charged with anything or there's no suggestion of that at this stage uh, and indeed her position is that she's acted always with integrity uh, therefore she has you know no, nothing to answer for at least that's her assertion and yet she's chosen to resign 
premiership in the middle of a pandemic and to leave parliament altogether. And so it's like she's defeated, you know, taking her on a word, it's like she's defeated by the, uh, by the process itself, by the, by the public humiliation of it. I suppose that's what liberals seem to be uh, reacting to. Would you agree with that? There is some substance to that criticism of the New South Wales ICAC model. I don't think it's wrong to say that the way in which New South Wales ICAC work works, or any ICAC works, changes the politi- political dynamic. There's no finding against Gladys Berejiklian, um, but it's the mere fact of its statement about its investigation, that it was investigating her, changed the political dynamic. Could she step aside while that investigation took place, or was that going to be an untenable political situation and therefore she decided to cut her losses. There is a political aspect to the decisions that a Integrity Commission makes. The day before or a couple of days before Barry O'Farrell resigned as New South Wales Premier, the council assisting the New South Wales ICAC, Geoffrey Watson, said there was no finding of corruption against Barry O'Farrell. But because he got his testimony wrong on a bottle of wine, he resigned again, because of the political dynamic. So I think that is that is a relevant consideration in looking at these institutions. But of course, we have a, a really live debate about all the powers here, not just the public hearings. The federal model at the moment doesn't allow the Commonwealth Integrity Commission, this proposed new body, to even launch its own investigations. So the pushback against the powers of an, inter- an independent commission has now gone so far in the Liberal Party that the federal ICAC <clears throat> is not even allowed to decide on its own what it looks into. It has to wait for a referral for, from some other federal agency. Well, what if that federal agency doesn't want to be you know, part, caught up in an investigation into corruption? They won't refer it. So there are some untenable um, positions in the government's objections to a Commonwealth Integrity Commission with wider powers that make it, as the Centre for Public Integrity said in a quite a useful report over the past week, just makes it the weakest watchdog out of all of these state and territory and different models around the, around Australia. So there's a live debate about how far those powers go. The public hearings are very much part of that, but... I haven't found a, an independent expert with legal expertise, with expertise in, in investigating corruption, who's at, who's at all impressed with the federal model at this point. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. How pressing is the need for a federal body to inquire into potential corruption and to ensure integrity in our you know Commonwealth officials? I think there's a huge need. You mentioned sports frauds. You mentioned the car parking scheme. When Ros Kelly lost her job for allocating money for sports projects in the Keating government using a whiteboard, the sum total of those projects was $30 million. The car parking scheme this year um, audited and found wanting $660 million. As government grows bigger under a Liberal government that claims to stand for small business, and the need for a commission grows stronger. Bigger government, bigger requirement for stronger powers to root out corruption because corruption is happening. We know it's happening in the public sector. 
Uh, it's just a question of how big the scale is and how much more the search needs to be. If, we, if I could ask you, what do you think about the way these matters have been handled in New South Wales? There's, there's in fact, a IBAC investigations into branch stacking and other shenanigans going on in the Labor Party on the front pages of some of the papers today. So certainly not limited to uh, the New South Wales jurisdiction. But this record in New South Wales of premiers standing down and uh, you know the the convention, I suppose it is, of ministers standing down when they are under investigation. This is not actually a rule, is it? It's it's really a standard of behaviour that's been established in response to the existence of these bodies and and their investigations. That's quite right. So so basically, there's no legal obligation for the politicians to stand down when they are under investigation. And indeed, ICAC makes findings of corrupt conduct, but then it's up to the criminal courts to take it up if they want to um, pursue any criminal proceedings. So um, certainly IBEC's report doesn't have any legal effect. The legal effect will happen the next stage if the police decide to um, launch an investigation and take it to the courts to try to prove any criminal corruption. So the politicians are, in a sense, choosing to stand down when the investigations have started and not even completed. So it hasn't even reached the stage of ICAC reporting. So just to go back to what you were saying, ICAC in New South Wales doesn't make findings of a, of a criminal nature, so it doesn't launch prosecutions. It can make recommendations. But, but in a sense, and I think the thing that's got up the noses of uh, many people in, in Canberra in the coalition in particular is the outcome of the initiation of an inquiry as much as anything else. Uh, just, just just simply the initiation of an inquiry is what is resulting in, and in the case of Berejiklian, has seen her lose her job, lose her place in parliament. I mean, you know, admittedly it's her decision, but um, it's consistent at least standing aside and then what happens after that's, I guess, up to, you know, her or the, the politician involved. But... The very act of being under investigation, the argument goes, is so damaging to someone's reputation for integrity and trustworthiness and the like that their position becomes untenable. And that's what they seem to be uh, strongly opposed to in uh, in Canberra. Sure. I guess there's the option, as you said, of standing aside while the investigation proceeds and once they're exonerated, they can re claim their position and say, it's all cleared, I'm back in action, I'm proven to be innocent of all of this. But certainly that's a big issue that has been raised in this debate, that people's reputations might be tarnished by public hearings. And there's some justification for that because we don't want people to be guilty before proven. So, um, so there's... A model that's been advanced and some state anti-corruption commissions have this, um, including the Victorian IBAC, where you only hold public hearings where it's in the public interest to do so. Otherwise, you would hold private hearings. So the Victorian model is doesn't hold public hearings as of course. They will hold a private investigation first and where there's a public interest to do so, they'll move to a public hearing and that's consistent with the model advanced by Helen Hayne as well when she put up a model for the Federal Integrity Commission. So there's, there are ways to design it. Um, so you can have 
both public and private hearings. But the federal model that's being put on the table completely says no public hearings at all for politicians and public servants. And that's just not consistent with the open justice principle that we have in Australia. We had the Banking Royal Commission, where the whole of the banking industry was exposed to public hearings. Um, we have judges uh, exposed to public hearings. We have a whole range of other actors in the public and private sector that are subject to public hearings. It's a bit weak to say that federal politicians and public servants are completely absolved of all public hearings. Yeah, because doesn't that actually, uh, in a sense, uh, fly in the face of the, the, the logic of these bodies in the first place? I mean, they're about accountability to the public. They're about transparency and about ensuring that the public can have absolute confidence in the administration of um, uh, you know, public policy and the like. And it seems to me if you've got a body that is uh, holding all of its uh, inquiries in camera, uh, the public really has to take on trust that it is doing its work diligently, that things are being brought to attention at a sufficient, in a sufficiently, you know, enthusiastic or muscular fashion, uh, and that uh, and that it's all achieving the public policy outcomes required. I mean, the public hearings may be embarrassing for people called before it, but shouldn't we be looking at the broader interest, the public interest, rather than the interests of uh, an individual? Yeah, I think that's quite right. That um, having a anti-corrupt, well, integrity commission that has completely private hearings undermines the purpose of an integrity commission to enhance public confidence in government decision making and also the transparency of government. We like to know what is going on when all these big controversies come up, and the public hearings help to expose that to public scrutiny. And certainly um, having a weak model will not enhance any of that, the public confidence in government decision-making, nor the transparency of how things work in government and expose um, the sins in government, the improper um, misconduct or corrupt conduct in government. Let's just take a quick break there and we'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back. Uh, David, uh, Christian Porter, the former Attorney General, was, uh, I think, dragging his uh, heels on uh, delivering this. Uh, the, the, the government's, uh, as the opposition says, been a thousand days since it was announced and uh, or over that now and uh, still, still nothing in the way of actual legislation. That's now being mooted possibly before the end of this year or into next year. Is there any evidence that Michaelia Cash, Porter's uh, replacement, is more enthusiastic about establishing a, um, a federal integrity commission? No. The, the draft bill for this was released as an exposure draft months ago. It might even be late last year. I can't quite remember. And then there was a lot of feedback, a lot of commu- uh, interest groups, legal experts, constitutional lawyers provided their feedback, and it was overwhelmingly negative. And then it just sort of sat there in limbo for a while. And now uh, there's talk about making some modifications and bringing it back to Parliament. Now, it's an election promise. Scott Morrison said he would set one up, and he said that before the last election. So uh, it's on them to come up with a model that, that, that they think can work and then put it to the Parliament, which they haven't done yet. So I think after climate change gets discussed in the next uh little while in Parliament, this could be one of the next bills to one of the next big issues to bring on. But I think they're going to struggle to get the numbers and I don't think their heart is really in it. They're going through the motions because it's an election commitment. There's talk about some adjustments. For instance, there are different standards of conduct uh, for different parts of the Commonwealth Integrity Commission. The net effect is that police officers would be um, judged by a harsher standard than politicians. Now, that's not going to fly with the police. The, the police, the representatives of the uh, of federal police, for instance, have totally rejected that. So I see that as one area where the feds realise they're going to have to move. The thing that I mentioned earlier about the federal ICAC being able to launch its own inquiries, I think that's got to be something that they move on. But even then, I see a dynamic emerging where uh, the crossbench in the Senate will look at it as too weak, Labor will look at it as too weak, and they may choose to fight on the issue at the election campaign rather than agree to legislate something simply because something's better than nothing. They may choose that between now and the election, it's better to have nothing and have the fight at the election over what the model should be. Yeah, it, this is really interesting in a political sense, though, because these are quite technical issues to to some extent. But there's also a, a kind of a, a popular political dimension to it, I think, which we saw on display in the case of sports rorts, uh, as I say, which sort of emerged out of a, an Auditor General uh, report in the uh, beginning of 2020. It, of course, sparked outrage amongst anyone, uh, amongst any people who, who looked at it closely and saw what was going on here, the apportionment of, of, of small grants, uh, uh, you know, using political indices, uh, backing up political interests rather than matching the criteria, you know, the political interference in the dis- disbursement of those funds. But there didn't really seem to be a lot of evidence at the time that Australians more broadly were as outraged. And 
I wonder whether that's just because there's a kind of a, a kind of a background or a resting level of expectation that that sort of thing goes on in politics. Of course, we've since seen Gladys Berejiklian observe that everyone does pork barrelling. I wonder whether there's a disconnect here. Can you turn an argument about technical aspects of a federal ICAC into a political issue at an election that actually is capable of shifting votes amongst swinging voters? which is, you know, really what an election campaign is all about. What do you think, David? I think it's possible, but I don't think that they would, that Labor would be arguing against a car park project or, or even against, a, you know, a changing room at a sporting facility. Um, it's too difficult for them to reject, you know, specifics in marginal seats, for instance, but I think they would still want to make a wider argument about corruption in government. We talk a lot about trust in government, and so I think the argument over the Commonwealth Integrity Commission becomes an argument about whether you trust the people in government and why they don't want more scrutiny, and so you talk about it in terms of the broad brush corruption claim. I think that's, uh, I think that's where it goes um, as a wider political debate. Labor could argue that at the election while still passing a modest Commonwealth Integrity Commission. Say okay, well, look, we've set this up, we've allowed it, we, you know, we voted for it in the Senate. We don't really like it, but it's better than nothing, and we'll fight at the election campaign on making it better, on changing it. I think that's possible. Um, there are basically two ways forward, but I know, having talked to Senate crossbenchers, they're really torn because they're so unimpressed with the with the Commonwealth proposal. Getting back to something that Ye Fui mentioned. In theory, there's some logic to the argument that, look, the federal ICAC body doesn't, doesn't convict anybody. That's up to the courts. Well, under the, federal model, under the federal model as it stands now, not only does it not hold public hearings, it doesn't issue public statements or findings, and you might not even know that it had an investigation on until the conviction comes years later in the courts. There's a lot of questions about whether that's... Um, just enough, uh, enough public uh, scrutiny at all. Uh, that's something that's very hard for, for crossbenchers like Rex Patrick to accept. That's a really good point, isn't it, Yifui? Because there are many issues which you might say fall short of a, a, a test of criminal evidence, but which are uh, clearly unacceptable uh, behaviours uh, that are, you know, breaches of either conventions or rules or community standards. If we think about sports rorts, uh, you know, pretty outrageous interference really there. Uh, there's no law broken as far as we can tell. But since then, of course, there was the, uh, you know, the park and ride uh, car parking uh, fund, which is I think about 389 million dollars in 20 marginal electorates in the 2019 campaign, also exposed by the Australian National Audit Office. It, it's possible under this new model, is it not, that I don't know whether, whether one, the new model would have power to investigate either of those things, so perhaps you can tell us about that, but even if it did, whether we'd ever know about it. Yeah, those are really good points, and certainly the proposed model for the Federal Integrity Commission will not be able to investigate sports roads or car park roads. And this is because they've set the bar for investigation way too high, um, requiring a reasonable suspicion of corruption that amounts to a criminal offence before you can even begin the investigation. And that means that most of 
the investigations we've seen at the state levels would not even be able to be started. So, so it's going to be incredibly difficult to even start an investigation because they are not legally able to do so under that proposed legislation. And it doesn't take in all the soft corruption or grey corruption that doesn't amount to criminal offences like exchanging bags of cash. Um, it'll take out significant misconduct or breaches of standards or breaches of codes of conduct. And the state anti-corruption commissions have investigated all those kinds of issues very effectively. And often investigations start um, with a lower bar and then more um, significant corruption issues arise from that investigation and the hearings that arise from that. So the federal model is extremely weak because it can't even start any major investigations unless there's a criminal offense involved. So there's a whole lot of problems with the model that they've proposed. And you have both alluded to, it's probably because they don't want that um, accountability. They don't want people to investigate all these rorts that are happening all the time. So, so certainly this model would not work to investigate all of these big headlines that we've seen in recent months. So let's look at it. If its powers are that it, it can't launch retrospective investigations, it won't have public hearings, it won't issue public findings, its referral arrangements are particularly narrow. I'm not sure whether it can act on tip-offs from the public. It can't investigate third parties. And if its, if its starting point is that it needs to believe there's, there's, there's criminal matters involved, why wouldn't that just be a matter for the federal police to begin with? Yeah, exactly. This is why everyone's calling it the toothless tiger and watered down and too weak. It, um, it's unclear whether it would be able to do any investigations at all. Um, that we've, oh, and we've seen so many issues in terms of rotting and mismanagement of funds and breaches of codes of conduct, but none of that would be able to be investigated at the federal level if they put up this model. And David, I presume that uh, if, uh you know, as we've seen with ICAC, where where people are limited in what they can say about whether they're even being investigated by by ICAC in New South Wales, uh, I presume that would be one of the only ways we'd ever find out if matters were uh, on foot in the in 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 this federal commission were it to come into existence, uh, in that uh, people such as yourself could be you know following a story, conducting some sort of journalistic investigation, and get stonewalled by by a public official, a politician saying uh, that matter is the subject of uh, of investigation elsewhere, and I'm not at liberty to speak about it. I think that's uh, that's a likely scenario. Under the federal model, there's no clarity at all about what's what it might look into, what, whether it could reveal what it was looking into, sorry, I should say. Uh, and we already see with the state bodies, even with the New South Wales ICAC, sometimes there are rumours about an investigation. It's not really clear whether one's ongoing or not, and then finally it emerges that it is. That's certainly happened in the, with the Victorian model as well, and that is a recipe for, for rumour about what's being looked into. Uh, it's probably hard to avoid that with with anything. There are always going to be rumours about investigations. But in the current the current version of the federal model, it just doesn't give 
the Commonwealth Integrity Commission much scope to confirm what it's looking into at all. And I guess, I guess because it may, can't make public findings, it could look into something and find that there wasn't any corruption and everything was, was legit. And I'm not even sure whether it could issue a public statement or a public finding in that circumstance. So there, the constraints are significant uh, and it doesn't really um, achieve that, that open government and transparent uh, scrutiny that people expect. And I suppose, Yifui, that the concerns that the crossbench might have about this is that uh, agreeing to a weak model could prejudice the chances of getting a stronger body up. You know, it sort of dissipates the political energy, uh, the momentum towards getting a, a, a body with teeth into existence, and therefore they'd prefer to not have anything than have something that forestalls uh, the possibility of a, a proper integrity commission. That's quite possible. I should say that the Victorian IBAC, when it was first put into place, was actually quite weak as well. So it had, could only investigate serious corrupt conduct. So that was a high bar, but not as high as criminal conduct um, at the federal level. And so there was a lot of criticism at the time when it was put into place that, oh, this is a weak model. It's not going to be um, as effective as New South Wales ICAC has been in investigating all these um, all these incidents of improper conduct or misconduct. But a few years later, the Andrews government did strengthen the, the model and reduce the threshold of investigation, add more offences that could be investigated. So certainly... It's possible to start with a weak model and then strengthen it over time. But as you said, there might be less political impetus to do so once we put it into place, we can forget about it. So it depends on the public momentum and public campaigns, I guess, to keep that debate going and live once it's, if a weak model is put in in the first place. Yes, that's an interesting point. It may well be, as David said, uh, the case that the Labor uh, does agree to to get it into existence and then pledges at the election to toughen it up, uh, to give it some sort of uh, a contrast to continue arguing about in the lead up to the election. David, um, look, just before we go, the other big thing, as you you touched on it before, uh, that's happening in federal politics is this major shift that's suddenly occurred after so long, a dozen years really, uh, in the climate space. I'm wondering how people, what do you think about this? How do people make sense of, of this giant backflip really by the Coalition, by the Business Council of Australia, by News Corporation? It's almost too big to understand at one level. It, I think it presents sort of a, a, a psychological hurdle for some people. Uh, do they believe it? Is the coalition serious here? Is it going to get to net zero by 2050? Is it going to name a at least a moderately ambitious interim target? We know that the negotiations are, have been going on with the Nats. Not all of the Nats are going to get across the line, but it looks like Barnaby Joyce, according to your reporting and, and that of others, is going to uh, be able to deliver the Nats to an agreement for some sort of uh, as yet unspecified quid pro quo. I'm just wondering about this, the sort of political psychology of this. What, 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 is, what can the community make of it and how do you think it will play out? I think it will play out by leading to a, a commitment to net zero by 2050 uh, and some stronger targets, right? 
at the government level. But I think what's actually happened at the broad level is that those who wanted action on climate change and who campaigned very strongly for action on climate change over a long period of time, they've achieved what they set out to do. They've changed the debate in a way that makes it obvious that community support is now strong enough, business support is now strong enough, that it's no longer feasible for a major political party to say, no, we're not going to act and we don't believe that it needs to be net zero by 2050. That's not possible anymore and that is the result of the campaigning over a long time. So the government has to adjust. We've seen the Business Council of Australia adjust because its members are adjusting. And we've seen News Corp newspapers adjust with big 16-page liftouts all about the opportunity from action on climate change. This is a shift that people have been trying to achieve. They've now achieved it. It's actually, the way I see it, a vindication for those people who wanted change. Now, this may not lead to more ambitious targets than net zero by 2050. There's a whole school of thought that says that's inadequate. I talked to John Connor yesterday. He's a climate expert who's been around a long time and he's been following this debate and the heartache over it for many years. He sees net zero by 2050 as the ticket for entry to global discussions on climate change. It's really the bare minimum that Scott Morrison needs in order to have a seat at the table if he goes to the United Nations summit in Glasgow. But you know, the government's made a calculation that it cannot reject that. It, it, it must get there. And I think even on the national side, we're seeing Barnaby Joyce and his party room being more disciplined I think, than some might have expected because there's a sense that Barnaby Joyce is going to get a deal with Scott Morrison and he doesn't want his party room running amok. It won't keep some of the diehards happy. Matt Canavan, Keith Pitt, a couple of others in the party room are going to reject the need for net zero by 2050, but Barnaby Joyce will have enough support to get an outcome with Scott Morrison. It will have a price on water policy, on farm policy, on big projects like inland rail, that's speculation. We just know that there's going to be a price, but but it will drag the government into a position where it's more in line with the wider community expectation where there's clear majority support for net zero by 2050. Could the Nats split on it? I mean, not just split in the sense of a couple of people not supporting it, but we, we know, of course, Christensen is leaving the parliament. Uh, Canavan... I guess is is less likely to split because of its split because of his closeness to Joyce personally. Pitt's in the ministry at the moment. Keith Pitt, perhaps therefore the you know they'll grumble a lot. They'll they'll say they'll vote the other way, but but essentially they uh, you know they'll they'll stay in the tent. But is there is there a possibility that Nats could split, or do you think that's uh, unlikely for the reasons I just said? Yeah, I think you've just answered it because Keith Pitt he won't want to lose the ministry. Matt Canavan is very loyal to Barnaby Joyce. They may end up with different opinions about net zero by 2050, but they're still on the same side. And I don't see the dynamic being a public, uh, irrevocable split. It'll be about differences of opinion and people reserving their right to express a different view, but a party room party room outcome that backs the leader. Yeah, if we just finally on this uh, and, and sort of looking at it at a, at a more helicopter level, 
what, what do you think the, the government really needs to do here uh, in terms of the kind of moral position? There's the, the coalition and uh, its backers in News Corp and, of course, business interests and the like have been you know, essentially abusing people for years. Uh, we, you know, there's been insults directed at Greta Thunberg and anyone else who put their head up above the parapet on on climate change for a long time. Uh, and suddenly we have this reversal. Do you think at a, at a sort of a practical level, some sort of acknowledgement of that is necessary for voters to accept that the government has changed or will the go- or, or, or could voters, you know, punish the, the government anyway uh, at the ballot box? I think it's about time to have action on climate change. And clearly the politicians have made the decision that, okay, the public opinion has changed, the tide has changed, and we now need to support it. So that's a good thing that they have changed their position. And the courts as well have said that um, there is a duty of care to protect the environment in a recent case called Sharma. So certainly the judiciary... The people, especially young people, are mobilizing for climate change. And it's good that finally there is some recognition amongst the politicians about this tide of change. And you think an apology is possible, David? (laughs) Um, No, I think, um, well, the Business Council of Australia, um, Jennifer Westcott said, look, circumstances have changed. And it's true that things do change over a couple of years. So the Business Council of Australia now has a policy that it said was was wrecking the economy a couple of years ago. But I think it's pretty clear that businesses should have seen this, had a longer view. <laughs> Having written about this for many years, I, I, I'll admit this, that I, I feel a, a, a real sense of bitterness about it at the same time as um, a, a sense of satisfaction for the reasons you said that finally people who've been arguing this case and using science and and trying to drive change have finally been vindicated. Uh, so it would be, would appear, but it, it there's been a lot of anguish, a lot of anxiety caused to a lot of people over a long period of time. And I think the idea that we should just forget that is I'm I'm struggling to process that. Oh no, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not something to be waved away. There's been a, more than a lost decade on climate change, uh, and that's actually why I chose to write something about what news has done. I usually avoid, like, the plague, journalism about journalism. I'm not a big fan Me of it. Me too. But in this case, I treated what the news corp newspapers did as a significant political shift. It changes the dynamic of the debate. I think um, it, it actually... Um, uh, makes it very difficult for the government to say, oh, sorry, we, we don't want to do net zero by 2050 after all. It helps with the conditions for getting the government to net zero by 2050. And I think it would actually, you never know what's going to happen at the next election campaign. And I don't know what the Labor policy is going to be on climate change at the next election campaign. But after running 16-page specials would about the need for action on climate, would these newspapers run a scare campaign against a Labor policy on climate? It does change the dynamic. We're not yet clear on all the implications. Yes, it's going to be very interesting to watch that. Uh, Associate Professor Yi Fui and David Crow, thanks very much, both of you, for what's been a really stimulating discussion on, uh, on some pretty big, important topics this week. Thanks for having us. Thank you. 
Pleasure. And that's Democracy Sausage. Uh, We'll talk again next week. Bye for now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.